The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Past and future are worlds we can never inhabit. We live of necessity in the present. But physicists and philosophers with very different outlooks from Einstein to Derrida claim the present is an illusion. From Einstein to Derrida, physicists and philosophers have long since claimed that the present is not what we think. And our experience of it is mere illusion. Is time not a river at all, but instead a static dimension? Are we deluded by experience into imagining that the present is real? On this week's episode, our speakers bring the latest developments in neuroscience, physics and the history of time to debate whether the present is really an illusion. Joining us this week, we have quantum physicist and author Julian Barber, famous for his work on timeless physics from the end of time to the discovery of dynamics. The experience of time is definitely not an illusion. However, I do think there is no such thing as time. Philosopher of science at New York University, Tim Maudlin, known for his influential work on the metaphysical foundations of physics and logic. Sure, time is real. The claim that time is an illusion, I think, is, um, is a very odd one, and I can't really think of any strong arguments to believe it. And finally, philosophy and history of science at the University of Durham, Dr. Emily Thomas, whose work showed why and how we've come to debate what is time. Whether or not the present is an illusion, I think it all kicked off about 100 years ago. We'd love to hear what side of the debate you fall on. Which speaker you think puts forward the best defence? Is time static or should we hold true to our experience of time as continuous? Head over to IITV on Twitter and Facebook to start the conversation and give us a rating and review on iTunes to let us know what you think. Back now to Joanna Kavanagh, who hosts this week's episode. The crucial question I'm going to pose now is, is time an illusion? And I'm going to start with Emily Thomas. Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. Okay, so the idea that time is an illusion is something that philosophers have wondered about for two and a half thousand years. The idea that time is just an appearance and not just time, that change is just an appearance was worried about back with the pre-Socratics. What is quite new relatively is the idea that now, that the present moment might or might not be an illusion. So I think that about a hundred years ago, people who thought that time was real conceived time to be static, a kind of block universe in which past, present, future are all real. 
and they saw time as kind of like a fourth dimension of space. So in the same way that in space you can move in any direction and no direction is privileged, I think people thought the same about time. And there were various reasons why that was so. So things like timelines had become really popular. They were invented in 1765. The very idea of plotting events on a timeline is something that's quite new. And as soon as you start to think about events on a line, you have something that's static. A line is something that doesn't move. And, and I think that's one of the things that led people to think about time as a static dimension. What you then get in late 19th, early 20th century is an absolute rebellion against this idea. So people like Henry Bergson in France and, and Arthur Eddington in Britain began saying, no, no, if you think that, there's, that time is just like space, then it means that there's nothing special about the present moment. There's no now that's ever moving, ever flowing forwards. You just have moments of time spread out and there's nothing special about now. And they really disliked that view. They thought that on the contrary, there is something really special about the present, that we feel time flowing and moving forwards. And, and that people who think about time as being static and the present as just being an illusion, that they're just missing out on this fundamental feature of the world. So I think this is how this debate got started, whether or not the present is an illusion. I think it all kicked off about 100 years ago. Brilliant. Thank you. That's very helpful as background to this debate. Um, Julian, I want to ask you the same question. Is time an illusion? Julian Barber. The experience of time is definitely not an illusion. Uh, that, I'm, that I'm quite sure of. I'm not mad. However, uh, I do think there is no such thing as time. Paradoxically, I would say that there are lots of things that I would be prepared to call instants of time or rather nows. My concept of a now is just something which is structured and is in space. And the simplest example I can give of that, and it's amazing how much of mathematics comes from it, is a triangle. So my simplest model of a universe would be three particles which are in space, and let it be simple Euclidean space. And in any instant, they are at the vertices of a triangle. So that, for me, is one now. And here's another one. It's slightly different. Or if you conceive of all possible triangles, that's a possibility space. And I would say these are all potential nows. And we are in one of them now, in an incredibly complicated, richly structured one. And I think it's the nature of that incredible rich structure which somehow or other the brain in passing from the structure which is in the brain and giving us a narrative in our consciousness leads us to believe that time is flowing. It's really all encoded in our brains now. But that's all there is, I think. That's very controversial, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about it a bit more. Great, brilliant. Thank you, Julian. And I want to turn to Tim Maudlin now to pose the question again, is time an illusion, Tim? No. Great, you want to, you um, have more time to expand. So, <laughs> if you'd like. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of the 
everyday guy on the street in this debate for many purposes. Amazingly, I can actually put bread on the table going around giving lectures, uh, defending the thesis that time passes. Um, <laughs> sure it does. And to me, the question, the kind of interesting question is why there's a debate about this at all. Let me make a couple quick historical comments. You can entertain the possibility that uh, things are illusions. Uh, Descartes very famously, in the first meditation, sat down to ask himself, what can I be absolutely certain about? And by reflecting on the fact that he dreams, he actually got himself to a state of saying, I'm not even sure there's an external world out there, right? Maybe it's all just in my head. So in a way, all of spatial reality, in, a, in, in, a, in two paragraphs, Descartes could put his finger on questioning it. But it never even occurred to him to question time, right? Even if you're asleep and dreaming, time is passing, things are happening, um, the, the events happen in a certain sequence. It does go back to antiquity, as was mentioned, but the, the main culprit there was Parmenides, who had a very peculiar logical argument uh, to the effect that you can't coherently talk about the non-existence of anything. And it followed from that, since change was that which is not coming to be, he said, well, that which is not is incoherent, so change had to go as well. He had a certain kind of heroic valor in following this argument out to its end and believing it, um, but it is kind of crazy. Um, so my view is, sure, time is real. Time doesn't have the temporal structure of the world isn't what we thought it was. We learned from relativity that it has a different structure than you might naively think. But the claim that time is an illusion, I think, is, uh, is, is a very odd one, and I can't really think of any strong arguments to believe it. Great. Thank you. That's an excellent uh, sort of tri triumvirate of views that we've already got on the panel. And so I'm going to turn to, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about concepts of time. Obviously, there are myriad concepts of time. Shakespeare talked about the whirligig of time. Marvell talked about time's winged chariot. Um, in slightly less poetic terms, we hear from science about time dilation, um, simultaneity, and so on. And I'm going to turn to one of these theories to sort of get us into the debate, which is the idea of the growing block universe theory, another not massively poetic sounding theory. Um, and I wondered, Emily, if you could put this in some context. What is growing block universe theory? And why is it so fashionable at the moment? What's going on? So if you are a growing block theorist, you think that the past is real, but the future is unreal. So if you think about reality as a kind of, as a block, so the past is like a, a block of stone, if you like. The stuff in the past has already been and gone. It's fixed, it can't be changed, but it's still sort of there. But the future is unreal. It's yet to be written. And as time moves forwards, growing block theorists think that the block of reality literally grows. That as each new present moment comes into existence, a new slice is added on to the block of reality. And this view, I think, was definitely implicit in Henry Bergson in the early 1900s, but it was really made explicit by a British philosopher called C.D. Broad in his 1923 book, Scientific Thought. And, and Broad argues that we have to be a growing block theorist because that, that is the only way to explain our sensation that time moves, that the present moves. 
So he thinks that the way that slices are continually added on to this growing block of reality explains our feeling that time is moving or passing through us. Thank you. And could you just explain a bit more about Wangli Bergson as well? Because I know he has such a huge influence on literature and on the way that time is expressed in 20th century, 21st century literature. So you say he's related to this theory. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about his idea of durée, duration? But yeah, I can. Right, so Bergson, French philosopher, he's looking around himself in the sort of 1880s, 1890s, and he thinks that what everyone is doing is spatializing time. So he's worried about the way people are sticking time on a timeline. He's worried about the way that science treats space and time symmetrically, as though they're the same kind of thing. And, and Bergson thinks that when we try to pin time down like that, or when science treats time as being just like space, we're missing the essential nature of time. And for Bergson, that's durée. It's this pure duration. And he thinks that duration is something that we experience when, say, we're listening to a song. So we can hear the different notes rise and fall. And he thinks that we have an experience of the notes sort of flowing, moving into each other. And he thinks that that's what time is really like. And he believes that this is simply an aspect of time that science misses. So sure, science says lots of useful things about time, but ultimately, science is missing this really crucial bit about time, which is the fact that it moves. Great, thank you. I, mean, I want to go back a little further as well, because the other person who's really credited with pinning time down is Newton, and you've written a lot about Newton. I mean, could you explain to the audience why, why is he uh, continually such an imposing figure in this debate? Well, I think Newton got it wrong. Oh, good. So, uh, yes, I and mean, explain why uh, you think that well, too. Well, the, that's historical. This is Descartes is, is the cause of the thing. So, up and so the Aristotelian cosmos was wonderful. The Earth was fixed and defined the frame of reference, and the stars were moving round. Then Copernicus and Kepler came along, uh, and one last fixed frame of reference remained. That was the stars up there. Uh, and the rotation of the Earth provided time. So that was a reassuring framework. But then Descartes came along with the mechanical philosophy uh, and shattered everything. And he just had bits of matter mubbing, moving around relative to each other and bumping into each other. And uh, then he said that motion was relative. But actually, when you look at his first law that he formulated, it's actually Newton's first law of motion, which says everybody uh, continues in a straight line at a uniform speed. And Newton said, this man is a lunatic. How on earth can he say, when everything is like rushing around like that and everything is relative, how on earth can you say that the point that is now here is at the same point an instant or two later in time? And to get around that problem, he said there must be an absolute space like the the stage on which we're sitting, on which I can draw a straight line, or like a great block of translucent ice. That's a sort of the picture that Newton had for there. And he had a notion of time flowing like a river. He says it flows on uniformly without relation to anything, which is just a load of nonsense if you stop and think about it. Because it comes back in the end. We know that time is flowing because of differences. And is it conceptually plausible that time would be going onwards, to use a metaphor, even if we couldn't see change? 
No, I mean, I, I would say there's, there's no, ev if there is no evidence for something, then forget it. Great. Well, that's, yeah, great. Thank you. Um, and so, Tim, I want to ask you a bit about Einstein comes in and then we have another massive theory of time. Could you yeah. explain what, what's his significance? So the, the big change between Newton and, and Einstein in relativity has to do with the notion of simultaneity. Newton believed, and he's very clear about it, and it's, it's your everyday thought, that when something happens here, I snap my fingers, that at the moment I snap my fingers, something or other was going on in London, something was going on in Mars, something was going on in a galaxy however far away. We won't find out what was going on for a while because the information isn't going to get to us for a while, but that it, it makes sense in terms of the fundamental structure of the world that this event is in an absolute sense simultaneous with other events. So there's a kind of instantaneous snapshot of the whole universe. And what happens, and, and the naive view is that actually that's just what you see, right? You open your eyes and you see a star explode and you say, oh my gosh, that star just exploded. And then you stop and you think, you say, no, no, that's not right. It took a long time for the light to get to my eyes. If it exploded, it exploded a long time ago, maybe millions of years ago. Now, what happens in relativity, people often say in relativity, simultaneity becomes relative. But the right thing to say is it's just non-existent. It's no longer that global notion of simultaneity disappears. Uh, in its place, you have a different kind of structure that has light cones to it. Relativity is really built out of thinking about light. Um, and it still has time structure. There's a distinction between the future and past directions. And I would say time still passes. It has a, a preferred directionality. So there really is a very important change in the picture of time that's centered in the disappearance of simultaneity. And time becomes a more local kind of matter in relativity. Can you just quickly explain what's the business about clocks slowing down? Well, of course, clocks, clocks, uh, clocks don't slow down. Um, the, there is an objective time structure. And what a good clock is like is an odometer in a car, right? A well-built odometer, if you drive your car, it keeps changing its meter. And it's indicating the length of the, of the path that you've traveled, yes? And if it's well-built, it's doing the right job, and two cars that are going side by side, their odometers will always match. But if two cars start out with their odometers set the same and take different routes and get back together, you'd not be at all surprised that their odometers no longer match. You'd say, well, of course, they took different routes. They had different. That's all that's going on in the so-called twins paradox. It's just that. You've, the, the, you think of a clock like an odometer. The twins have different paths through space-time. The clocks are measuring the lengths of the paths. And the different paths have different lengths. So when they get back together, they're now different ages. But to say that a clock slows down makes no sense, because slows down relative to what? A good clock is just accurately measuring the temporal structure along its trajectory. Great. And Julian, I want to ask you a bit about quantum mechanics and what that does. We then get this sort of business of atomic clocks and atoms with their very sort of regular behavior. I mean, what's that? Um, what's happening there? And atomic clocks, which need everything to be in synthesis, don't they? Aren't they incredibly baroque? They, they, they do. I, can I actually slightly cheat? Let me first of all say that uh, Tim's account was very good. 
that at some stage I want to give a slightly different picture of what space-time might be like. Let's, uh, atomic clocks are just absolutely wonderful things. They, the key thing in it is an atom, but it's an incredibly complex process. First of all, to select an atom in exactly the right state. You have a sort of furnace which evaporates atoms, then it goes through a device which selects atoms in exactly the right state. Then it goes through a microwave field, and then it gets sent in one of two directions. And if it goes in the right direction, then it's telling the right time. There's complicated feedback things. Atomic clocks are incredibly complicated things. But it is absolutely miraculous how well they work. And there's no shadow of doubt that they confirm everything that Tim has asserted about how, how time goes. There's no, there's no, I mean, I would be mad to deny that. So where um, do you diverge then? Yeah, I, I diverge uh, in saying that the, I would still say that there is an alternative way of thinking about time, a space time, where you don't think of it as a block that's given once and for all or even that it's growing, which I think is, we could talk about that because a lot of people who think it's growing now believe that this collapse of the wave function is causing it to grow, which I think is very questionable. But the picture that I have, so this is work that was done in the 50s, which showed that there is quite a different way of thinking about space-time, which is much more like Newtonian dynamics, where basically you can think about it as being one, one three-dimensional structure, another one like that, another one like that. And they are put together, so you put, you put the one triangle relative to the other in which the difference between them is reduced to a minimum. So you can stack one like that. So the next three-dimensional structure, you put it on top of that, and then, the, and then you put it in a certain separation from it, which is a measure of the amount of difference between them at each point. That's duration. That's, that's where you're getting duration out of difference. And you go on building up like that. Now, in, there's two ways to s say this. It, it could well be, well, certainly the normal picture and the, the one that everybody would accept is that you, once you've built up space-time like that, you can cut it in any way you like, or you can travel through it in any way you like. And that's where I tie up completely with, with Tim on that account there. But there is, and this is work that goes back uh, to early 1970s, which may be even more fundamental, which might suggest that actually hidden in this wonderful structure that Einstein discovered, there might be a unique way of defining a simultaneity within Einstein's general theory of relativity, not his special theory of relativity. And it's very, very beautiful because in three-dimensional space, you know how beautiful a soap bubble is. It has what's called constant mean curvature. The curvature of the soap bubble is always perfect. So there's nothing more beautiful for a child than to see soap bubbles floating through the air. And this very special way that may, and quite a lot of relativists take this seriously, that may exist in space-time is analogous to soap bubbles in four dimensions. And that's called constant mean curvature foliation, if you want the technical word. It's another lovely poetic term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would say there may, after all, be a notion of simultaneity. But what, whichever way you cut that loaf of bread, if you cut it through that way, you will always get a three-dimensional structure. So I, so I think my notion of a now survives even then. And I think it will also survive in any quantum theory of the universe, or at least I think there's a reasonable chance. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers?
the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Julian. You've led us actually into our next rough theme in the debate, which is this question of the present, the now, and is it, is it special? If it isn't, then why not? This feeling that we all have that we're in a present. I mean, one of the really famous ancient theories is Aristotle's idea of this kind of the present as the sort of point of differentiation between past and future. Could you just fill us in a bit on this as it's a kind of ancient theory that seems to be a bedrock beneath a lot of further theories? I can. I, so there's a question of what is the present moment? So we all feel like we're in the present moment right now. And one way of thinking about that is to think about the present as a kind of dividing line right, between the past and the future. Right, so the, the present is just this teeny tiny infant infinitesimal, can I say that word rightly, a moment between what's gone before and what's coming and what is to come. Something that people began worrying about after Aristotle is whether or not we really experience that present moment because it seems to be a kind of mathematical point and, and what we experience doesn't seem to be a mathematical point. The present that we experience seems to be longer than that. Uh, so, for example, I think I can have the experience of watching a traffic light change from red to green, and that I can see that in one present moment. Um, and that suggests that the present isn't just some teeny tiny indivisible mathematical point, that actually the present has some duration, um, a couple of milliseconds, or whatever it might be. And, and so this question of what the present actually is, is one that's given rise to a lot of debate. People just aren't really sure. Yes. And so, and also we have, I mean, there's a sense that we have the sense of a sequence, don't we? We kind of peel off the pages on a, on a desk calendar that you're sort of taking them off one by one. And, and again, that seems to have a, a sequential notion behind it. I mean, is this, is this a, I'll turn to Tim maybe about this, the sort of idea of time having an arrow, time moving right. forward tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, as, as Shakespeare said. Um, it, again, could you explain why do we feel that time has a direction as opposed to space? And actually, maybe this is something Julian would like then to respond on. Right, right. Why, I mean, why do we feel it's going forward? I think we feel it's going forward because it is. Um, right, good. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a and, and, and even, you, you see, in space, there really is no preferred directionality. If you, you imagine in a three-dimensional Euclidean space, you have arrows pointing all different ways, and, and they don't, you, you wouldn't know even what to make if someone asked, well, which, is, which way is space going? You say, well, it's not going anywhere. It, you know. But it, even in relativity, when we got rid of this absolute simultaneity, uh, you have these light, this light cone structure. You've probably all seen pictures of light cones, and they, they look like double cones with a point at the center. And that structure divides directions in space-time 
into different classes. You have the future light cone, and you have all these directions that are, as it were, pointing to the future. Uh, you have the past light cone, and you have all these directions that are pointing to the past. And you, you can't rotate from down here to up here without going through the whole outside bit, right? The whole outside bit, which is connected points in what we call space-like directions. So just that structure says, yeah, in space-time, there are fundamentally three different types of directions, the future-directed, the past-directed, and the, as it were, space-like-directed. And one obvious explanation for that, why is, why is this time, why does the two directions of time fall into two classes, past and future, is because time is an intrinsically directed quantity. It has a direction to it. We're, unfortunately, all headed toward our graves and you can't stop that train. I mean, it, it, it just keeps pushing you along. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. I wish I could sit up here and say it's an illusion, but it isn't. Um, and I think a lot of the confusion comes because the mathematics that had been developed, starting with Gauss, to understand spatial structure was very powerful and new and interesting. And if you're a mathematician or a physicist, you learn a lot about that. But that was developed to describe space. And there is no intrinsic directionality to space. And then when it came to trying to describe space-time, the natural thing to do was to pull off the shelf this mathematics that was already there and use it, which is what people did. And then they looked at it and they said, but there's no direction in there. And you said, well, yeah, because you pulled off the shelf a gadget that wasn't built to represent directionality. But that's just a, a, a kind of failure in the mathematics. It's pretty easy to solve that and to, to, to develop a mathematical structure for describing intrinsically directed quantities like time. Well, Julian, I feel you might diverge from Tim on this. Uh, yes, yes, have, yes, yes, up to now I've yes. been in splendid agreement You've been agreement all in useful <laughs> concord, but I, I think... Full of, full from, of praise for his you, I mean, you have a theory that almost, I mean, it evokes some of Aristotle's, but you, you're going both directions well, from the point, are well, you possibly? I mean, there's, please there's explain. Two, yes. There's two things I'd like to... One is, I think, key in this, and perhaps it's, it's time we mentioned neuroscience. Oh, goody. And, and yes, the, speci please. the specious present, which William James, who was a great admirer yes. of Bergson, yes. introduced. Now, well, we're all yeah, familiar he with... He borrowed it from Shadworth Hodgson. Beg your pardon? He borrowed it from Shadworth Hodgson. We have to get these things all right. Yes. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I don't know. But anyway, I think the concept, uh, he coined the concept, I believe, the, 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 the specious present, which is that fact that we basically we can grasp things that extend over a few seconds, like the famous line, when I do count the clock that tells the time, the Shakespeare pentameter, that, that, that sits, we, we, we comprehend that. And I think that is very much why we think that uh, time flows forwards. Uh, I mean, that's, that's undoubtedly the, ex I think everybody would agree here that, that that is the experience we all have and we think that time is moving forward. Now, uh, my view is that actually this is just a narrative that the brain is providing us. The greatest mystery, and nobody here can tell me what, how consciousness works, but I think neuroscientists are now quite clear that the brain provides us with a narrative. And my naive, most naive picture is, so to speak, when I move my hand like that and you see motion, Actually, what it is that in any instant, and this would be truly an instant, one of my triangles, only much, much richer, there are a whole lot of photographs of my hand in a different position. And the brain 
gives you that narrative of seeing in motion, that that is, that is the miracle there. And in fact, if you read the last book that Oliver Sacks was able to publish, The River of Consciousness, read the chapter on which is called The River of Consciousness. And he is saying it seems there is real evidence from neuroscience that in a way the brain does work with successive snapshots and presents a whole lot of them at once to us there. So that is my explanation of where Tim's, if I may say at this stage, Tim, without offending you too much, your delusion arises from. <laughs> now, uh, there was one other thing, but maybe we better stop at that stage and give the others a chance. I'll think about the other thing I wanted to say. In a moment. Do you want to respond quickly uh, to, I'll just to being say told something that very quickly about this? Very politely Look, that your delusion. Um, the, the issue of consciousness gets you into the mind-body problem. Good luck. Nobody understands it. Uh, it gets you into neuroscience. It gets you into very complicated issues about psychology. This is not my expertise. I, I don't have anything to say about it. I think it's probably very hard. But notice that if you say the brain is provided some snapshots, and then makes a narrative out of them, that's itself a temporal locution. Making, the problem is we have time built into all our verbs. Producing a narrative is something that is directed in time. Right? It, it, the suggestion is there's a, a mental machinery. And the idea we have of machinery is that machinery works in time. You give it something, and it gives you back something later. Right? So all of this talk of how the brain works already presupposes in the background that time is flowing in the normal way and that the brain is going through a sequence of states like a computer. And so you can't say it's producing time out at the end because you're presuming time in giving the account of the brain that you're given. OK, I really want to, oh, do you want to come in? Julian's also just whispered, I have the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I just I, no, I no, want to allow him to come in as well. But of course, also, no after him. Emily, I wanted to ask you as well, I mean, reversibility of time. I mean, experientially, we really don't experience reversibility, as Tim said. I mean, if, if one of our glasses fell off the table, shattered, you know, we'd call for a dustpan. We wouldn't kind of wait for it to jump back and reassemble itself. Yes. I mean, is that, in terms of our experience, maybe this can bring us into our third rough theme. I mean, the sort of disparity sometimes between scientific theories and experience. I mean, is that a possible example of that? <laughs> Let me... Or are you going to tell me that it will come back sometimes? I'm not going to say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say a little bit about photographs first, and then we'll talk Lovely. about this. Okay, great. So, Julie, that example that you use strongly puts me in mind of Bergson. So, something that was going on 1850s onwards was the invention of chronophotography. Right, so this is when, for example, you have a bird in flight and someone takes a series of photographs showing the bird. And cinema was just being developed around this time. People were just seeing the way that very closely related images could build themselves up into a moving film. And, and Bergson was very worried about this. And he knew that people would use this metaphor to explain what time is. And you know that time is really just a series of static snapshots and our brain just does something to give us the illusion that they're really in motion. And, and he really asks us to consider whether looking at these static snapshots is the same as 
the motion that we experience when we see a bird in flight. And, and his answer is simply that it's not, that you're just missing something. And when you look at the snapshots as opposed to when you really experience motion. So I suspect how convincing people find the cinematic view of time is going to depend on how they feel about that particular thought experiment. So Julian, do you want to respond both to Emily yeah, and, and with both, your answer yes. to Tim? Well, first yes. of all, to, to Bergson, of course, he was thinking long before neuroscience came into play. We know the brain tells us lie. There are experiments which quite clearly uh, you see one thing flash before another, but, you know, but the, uh, the experiment proves quite conclusively that the brain has felt it must give you a narrative, has made the best sense of the information it's receiving, and has actually reversed the temporal order. So, so that deals with that. Now, as regards to, to, to Tim, uh, so, uh, I mean, Berg, he was poetic and all that, Bergson, but I, I can't oh. take him too seriously, I'm afraid. But, the, sorry, I'm being a bit rude. Now, what I want to say about Tim, uh, who was saying the brain, because I said that's the way the brain works, but let me make the following suggestion. We shouldn't think about local laws of motion or what is happening in the brain because we are all parts of the universe. And I would say there is a law of the entire universe. And everything that we do is just, we are just being carried, if you like, I'll use the expression, being carried along by what the whole law of the universe does. And, and now, where does the arrow of time come from? I would say it's the following. Allow me a timeline, but not a physical one, not, not anything that, that Tim or anybody else who doesn't like the idea of a timeline, but it's convenient to, to, to arrange my triangles on in accordance with how different they are from each other. And the, and the, the mystery about the, the arrow of time and the growth of entropy is that the laws of nature, all the known laws of nature, seem to be completely symmetric with the direction of time. But why do we, you, you take a film of two billiard balls colliding, run it backwards, it looks exactly the same. However, somebody diving into a swimming pool and you run it backwards looks completely different. Why do we have everything, pretty well everything around us is like people diving into a swimming pool or cups of tea breaking and all of that sort of thing there? Well, I would suggest the explanation is quite simple. If you imagine there is a timeline, it's divided in the middle by the Big Bang. And on, and the solution overall is completely symmetric. And on this side, the people who are experiencing things like us, we're this side of the Big Bang, and we experience time going that way. And the ones on that side experience time going that way. And they are building up their memories in that way, and we are building up our memories in that way. But Tim's invisible time flowing forwards. I'm sorry, Tim, I can't buy it. <laughs> OK, I think, Tim, the, can you respond to this possibility that the kind of, you know, the great schism is the Big Bang and that everything's going forward one way and everything's going backwards um, the other way? Or we could have closing remarks on time as time is pressing. Sure, I can, I, I mean, I can make a comment about it. I, I've been, I, I said, I think, a lot of this trouble um, about the direction of time comes from not using a mathematics where intrinsic directionality is easily representable. And I, I'm trying to sort of put my money where my mouth is. My recent work has been developing a different way of doing geometry where the directionality can be easily um, na and naturally uh, put in. And I could even um, give you a model that corresponds to what Julian said with the Big Bang 
with arrows, as it were, directional arrows coming out from the Big Bang, some going this way and some going, going that way. It could be like that. I don't know of any, any actual evidence that it is like that. But even then, it's an intrinsically directional thing. The difference is, is the directionality in nature, in the nature of space-time itself? Or does it derive from something else? Now, what Julian wants to say is it derives from, say, or I'm not sure if Julian would say exactly this, but many people would say it derives from entropy, that the, the forward direction of time is the direction in which entropy increases, by definition. Now, notice, if that were true, then by definition, entropy can't decrease. Because as long as there's, it's changing, the direction in which it's getting bigger counts as the direction, the future direction. So it's increasing, right? But what we think is that it can decrease. It's just unlikely. I mean, the normal physics tells us that if we drop the, the glass and it breaks, and you wait a really, 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 really long time, it will eventually reassemble and jump back up. I mean, that's the Poincaré recurrence theorem, if we closed off, anyway, closed off the thing. Don't sit around and wait for it to happen. Right? The time scales are far beyond anything you can imagine. Um, we think that that could happen. We never see it happen. That calls for an explanation, and we have to talk about entropy, and we have to talk about do we understand why the Big Bang was a low entropy state? That's a very interesting philosophical and physical question. And I think Julian has a way of thinking about that which is a little unusual and maybe a, a way forward. But I don't think that the direction of time follows from entropy because I think it, it, that, that the, the direction of time is intrinsic to time itself. And it's that that tells you whether the entropy is in fact increasing or decreasing. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, alas, we all have to go and inhabit the future in a moment. So I want to say thank you so much to you all for coming and passing your time here. And thanks to our wonderful speakers, Julian Barber, Tim Maudlin, and Emily Thomas. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This episode was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Julian Barber, Tim Maudlin, and Emily Thomas. If you enjoyed this week's episode, then please do delve deeper and have a listen to some of our other amazing episodes on the reality of time. Check out episode 106, Back from the End of Time, to hear world-leading physicists Eric Flinder and leading philosophers Hugh Price and Alison Fernandez take on the nature of time's existence. Does it really exist in the physical world, or is it something merely only humans perceive? Or why not listen to episode 90, Time's Arrow, to find out which direction time is flowing. Join physicist, poet and thinker Raymond Tallis, philosopher and broadcaster Angie Hobbs, and theoretical physicist Jim Al-Khalili to debate how to make sense of the flow of time. Please do head over to IITV on Facebook and Twitter and let us know which side of the debate you fall on. Tell anyone you know that might be interested and of course tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. 
Inspiring kid confidence.